Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, September 3rd, 2020, just two months from the November elections. Get your vote in early. Our system of government is in fact, full of loopholes and flaws. But it is the best system anyone has come up with so far. If you want to keep it, vote. Voting is the fuel for the engine of our democratic republic. So vote. I don't care what ideology or political persuasion you subscribe to. Not voting undermines the essence of the American experience. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Pro se litigants and many of their lawyers have asked me over the last 14 years, how do you prove that? And when I answer that they don't need to prove anything because they're not claiming anything, they look confused. And then when I suggest that they might actually have a claim that they are not making, they flee like I'm some conspiracy theorist. There are plenty of conspiracy theorists around. Some try to badmouth me to provoke me to engage with them. I don't. So then, because this subject is challenging, they start thinking that I'm obtuse or maybe too stupid, despite my litigation experience as the attorney or lead counsel for 45 years, four and a half decades, trying around 2,000 cases and winning most of them. Then these people go out, these lawyers also go out and they do two things. First, they don't challenge end of month statements and they answer notices and complaints by admitting the most essential fact that then leads to all other facts and conclusions, that the loan account exists. And of course, they don't send qualified written requests and debt validation letters or file complaints with the Consumer Financial Protection Board or State Attorney General, because what good will that do? What guarantee do they have? I guarantee that in nearly all cases, the opposing party will answer and you will have the foundation for your defense narrative if you follow what I have been suggesting all these years. Second, they go out and make wild claims because they think that's what they have to do. But those are claims that they can't prove without the cooperation of the lawyers for the other side. And as anybody knows who's had anything to do with litigation in the the field of foreclosures, 
Those lawyers are not going to cooperate, even if you gave them a glass of water in the desert. So then they lose. And they convince themselves that the system is corrupt, which is sometimes true, but not nearly as often as some believe. They refuse to believe that they could have won and might still be able to turn it around. The answer to all of this is that less is more. And during this period of moratoriums, it would be well to take the time now before the action starts in your case to make tracks in the sand and establish the foundation for your defense narrative. Otherwise, it looks like you just made it up trying to get out of a legitimate debt. Makes it harder, but not impossible. Here's what happens in court. And the judge will often be the one asking these questions, which will hang over the air if you don't aggressively present your defense narrative early and often and with passion. They'll say, you received a loan, didn't you? You didn't pay, did you? You signed the note, didn't you? You signed the mortgage, didn't you? Tonight's program is about why all those questions are actually irrelevant. I'm going to tell you some clues about how to instruct the court and convince the judge to rule in your favor. It takes skill that most people, including lawyers, don't possess because primarily because they all share a mythology with the judge, that is to say, the homeowner, the homeowner's lawyer, and the judge all agree, along with, of course, the lawyers on the other side, they all agree, you all agree when you go in the courtroom, that the loan accounts actually exist. And then... Homeowners consent to this myth because they can't imagine how it could be otherwise. Just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean you got it right. Anybody who's listening to this broadcast who has the kind of experience I had on Wall Street doing underwriting, investment banking, etc., knows that it's often the case that we're pushing the boundary, the envelope uh, on offerings in ways that are unimaginable to laymen. The question is what happens legally in court after we've done that on Wall Street? And And the answer frequently is Wall Street gets away with it a lot of the time. I'm here on this program and on my blog and in in my work that I do for for those people who hire me to tell you it doesn't have to go that way and that I have won and I can help people win. I can't teach you bookkeeping, accounting, and auditing in this short period of time for this program, but I'll tell you this. All transactions, financial transactions, All financial transactions have a record. 
There's an entry on a general ledger. And all such entries start with double entry bookkeeping. Every transaction has a record and a report. If there is no record, there is no report. If there's no record, it means the transaction presumptively did not happen. Yes, it's possible there was a transaction, they failed to record it. That is extremely rare, especially in this context. But if you pick up one of those dummy books on double-entry bookkeeping and study it for a little bit, you will understand about how a debt, an obligation, is born in the real world and how that is used in the legal world. It won't take long for you to definitely know what I know, that there is no loan account and there never was any intention for one to exist in the real world on the books of any company. But there was every intention to make every belie- everyone believe that there is a loan account. And by making everybody believe it, well, then it was easy to enforce it. The logic is relentless. Once you admit the existence of a loan account, it is only natural to assume there must be an owner of it. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which a loan account could exist without there being an owner of it because a loan account, by definition, would be the entry on the books of some company that's claiming ownership. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. Because a loan account only exists if someone paid for it. This is relentless and wrong only because it starts from the wrong premise. So then, if you didn't make the expected payments, someone lost money. That's the presumption. But if the loan account didn't exist, then there was no payments that should have been expected. And nobody lost money. Since there is nobody else making the claim, the person who sued you or the person who supposedly authorized the filing of a notice of default and notice of sale must be an authorized claimant. You see how you slide down that slope, and the further down you slide, the more the uphill climb after. And once all that is assumed and presumed, you're dead in the water. And that's why lawyers have convinced themselves they can't win, even though they could win most of the cases. And no, you don't have to be uh, a trial lawyer for 45 years. You just need to accept the basic premise of the defense narrative, which is that the loan account doesn't exist. That, in turn, is why most homeowners fail to defend the biggest investment of their lives. And they let greedy banks take it away for fun and profit. That house is yours. And taking it away is the civil equivalent to capital punishment. That is why there are extra statutory protections against someone taking it who is not going to use the money to pay down the debt account. If there is no debt account, they're just taking the money, and they've thrown you out on the street. 
The problem is that you admitted something that you knew nothing about. No borrower knows what happened to the loan account, even at the time of origination. No borrower knows what happened after that. So why would you admit something you know nothing about? Start there. Stop admitting. No yes but. If you want to successfully challenge a foreclosure, you must start on your toes and not on your heels. If you admit the existence of the loan account, you are just guessing and you basically have placed yourself in a bad position on your heels with your entire defense narrative being yes, but. For the judge, in most cases, there is no but. Once you say yes, case over. So here is how you go about opening the judge's eyes. Any competent, objective lawyer would start the analysis or the cross-examination or voir dire of the witness, all of which requires a fair amount of preparation. They would always start by asking, what debt? The fact that some someone witnesses or simply finds out, for example, about a slip and fall in front of a supermarket does not give them the right to press a claim against the supermarket for themselves. The witness to the slip or the fall or the investigator who discovered that it happened has not been injured. And the fact that the person who slipped and fell can't be found is no reason to give damages to a witness or to an investigator. Regardless of how negligent the behavior of the supermarket, maybe they knew about the hole in the ground, and maybe they were warned repeatedly. Maybe they were even given a citation. All of that shows that they could be liable if there was a claimant. But it doesn't give the right for anyone to step in as a claimant. You have to be the injured party. The fact that there could be liability for a breach of duty by the store is insufficient in our legal system in every courtroom, federal, state, whatever. The duty must be owed to the person who filed the claim. California Supreme Court and even over versus New Century put it simply, the proposition that someone without a claim should not re achieve a remedy, and I quote, is not or should not be controversial. So if the supermarket store defended a claim brought in court by the witness to the slip and fall, who was pleading for damages on their own behalf on the basis that the claimant in the defense basis that the claimant had no right to bring the claim, the result is obvious. Judgment is entered in favor of the supermarket against the witness or the investigator. In fact, in that scenario, it is quite possible that the claimant in that scenario would be assessed sanctions for bringing a frivolous action. The judge would be in error might even be disciplined for asking questions of the supermarket or the supermarket's lawyer like, well, they were negligent, right? 
Well, there was a fall, right? And the reason why that would be wrong is that nobody knows who the person was that fell or even whether they suffered any injury, nor whether they even wanted to bring a claim. If the court presumes injury from the fact that there was a fall, it would be an error unless that's the person bringing the claim. The court has no way of knowing about that, and neither do you. If there is no injury or if there is no intent to bring a claim, even if there was injury, our system does not consider the claim filed by anyone other than the person who owns that claim. In foreclosures, the problem is that the person defending, the homeowner, does not know that the party suing does not possess any claim against him or her and doesn't know that there was no injury to anyone. They don't know that because they don't know investment banking. All they know is what they've been told, and what they've been told is a living lie. So when the judge asks, well, you got the loan right, well, you stopped paying right, the unspoken inference is that there must have been a claim and there must be injury, and that the homeowner must have caused the injury. None of those things are true where the claimant shows up in court as the designee or nominee of a securitization scheme. The name used as claimant is often a nominee who has dubious legal existence. By, by that I mean... They might not exist at all, legally. And even if they did exist, they have no right, title, or interest to any debt, note, or mortgage of any homeowner, much less your mortgage. That claimant has not suffered any injury because it does not even maintain any loan account as an asset of that claimant. And the company that shows up to testify is not a servicer, really. It's just a witness to a witness who knows nothing about the internal workings of the the alleged remic trust. They don't know anything. The reason they're selected as a robo-witness is because they don't know anything, and because they don't know anything, there's no way for them to slip up and tell a story that would be injurious to the investment banks who are the ones behind every foreclosure and who are going to profit from the foreclosure. The problem then is not with the judge who is merely following established procedures. Once something is admitted by both sides to be true, the court must take it to be true. It's required to do so. That's the rule of law. So when the homeowner answers yes to those erroneous questions posed by the court, the judge is required to assume that there is a loan account, that the homeowner had a duty to pay it, and that the homeowner breached that duty by failing to pay the claimant who is named in the action. If you have to, you need to object to even the judge's question. The problem is not with the judge, but with the homeowner and his or her lawyer who share the assumption that the loan account must, in fact, exist. 
And they do that without reference to any actual facts. It's just that they've got people on the other side claiming that's the case. And because they don't know any different, they assume it must be true. But let me tell you, in most civil cases and criminal cases, we don't do that. Just because something is asserted or alleged in a complaint or in an information or indictment, we don't assume that any of the facts in there are true. We test each and every one of them. And that's what I'm saying you do case. But in order to do that, you're going to need some cooperation from the judge. And so you're going to need to lay out your defense narrative. And you can concede. I understand this seems unlikely to you, even counterintuitive. But we will show that it's true. And failing that, we will at least show that this plaintiff has no right title or interest to the debt, note, or mortgage or any payments from the homeowner or any proceeds of foreclosure, and they're not going to get it either. So when the homeowner answers yes, the judge is required to assume that there's a loan loan account and that the homeowner had a duty to pay it and that the homeowner breached that duty by failing to pay the claimant who's named in the action. The problem is not with the judge. It's with the homeowner and his lawyer who share that assumption. Homeowners, their attorneys, and the judge are victims of a shared myth that the loans were securitized. Why? Because if you tell a lie often enough and loud enough, eventually lots of people come to believe it. If the loans were securitized, that would mean they were sold to investors. I can assure you that there is not one word in any document, in any securitization scheme that says that the loans are being sold to investors because they were not sold to investors. The investors never took title to any debt, note, or mortgage. They don't have any legal or equitable right to receive any payments from any borrower or from the sale of the home. So if you got a foreclosure where it's Bank of New York Mellon as trustee for the Wankity Wank Trust on behalf of the holders of pass-through certificates, none of that is true. But it's going to be true if you don't start challenging all this early, often, and with passion. There's not just an absence of evidence to support the assumption of a sale to investors. The litigation between investors and trustees and investment banks, you can look at my blog, you can look at Bill Patel's blog, uh, Patelow's blog, um, makes it clear that investors are neither beneficiaries of any trust 
nor do they in any way have any one right title or interest to any debt note or mortgage from any homeowners, nor any two right title or interest to any payment made by a homeowner, nor three any right title or interest to the proceeds of the foreclosure sale. And they won't receive it. And they don't receive it. If you make that part of your defense narrative that immediately invokes your right to go on a fishing expedition in discovery based upon that defense, because if those things are true, then there is no claim. And in most cases, judges will allow it once you lay out your defense narrative. Litigation like that reveals that the financial institutions whose name is invoked as trustee have no fiduciary relationship with investors, no fiduciary relationship with borrowers, nor any other obligation of performance with respect to investors or borrowers, with respect to the enforcement of any action relating to the sale of certificates, which are also known as mortgage bonds, that investors purchased, nor any of the loans claimed to be part of the so-called portfolio of the REMIC Trust, which in fact has never been purchased, nor has any uh, uh, legal right title or interest to any loan been granted to the trust by someone who owned it. Pro se homeowners and frequently their lawyers make the same mistakes. They have convinced themselves that they're looking for a magic technical bullet. There is no magic bullet because the answer is hiding in plain sight. There is no claim and the party designated as claimant is just that, a nominee or designee who has more in common with the witness to the slip and fall in front of the supermarket than the unknown person who fell. question is not whether you can prove something. The question is whether the claimant can prove that they own a claim against you. And remember that pleading is not proof. The rules are different for pleading than they are for proof. If the attorneys have stated ultimate facts upon which relief could be granted, then, then the burden is on your side to answer. And if they prove the facts that they have alleged, then they have proven their prima facie case, and the burden shifts to you to disprove it. When the attorneys say their client is the holder of the note, that is an implied allegation that their client is the owner of the loan account. While you might prevail by hammering on their burden of proving that, it is far safer to challenge it directly and boldly. It's important to put it in your answer, your affirmative defenses, and maybe even a counterclaim. Um, and, and instead of admitting the paragraph about the note, you need to be very careful about what you're admitting to and what you are denying and what you have no knowledge of and therefore demand strict proof. But if you admit the allegation that they are the holder, you have already weakened your position and perhaps killed your chances for success. Even discovery might be rejected because you already admitted the issue. 
To do this, you need to either have faith or simply take the leap anyway. Make clear that your defense narrative that the loan account does not exist and that part of the securitization process was designed to retire the loan account then and then to resurrect it with so that it can even they can get even more money. Take the risk. Ask the question. Please identify the legal person who currently maintains an account receivable for the subject loan. When was the date of the transaction in which the identified legal person paid value in exchange for ownership of the alleged underlying obligation? You're not going to get an answer for that. You have to file a motion to compel, a motion to motion and eliminate. Then and only then will you truly understand that you didn't understand. Not at origination, not during servicing, not during collection, not during enforcement. That's all I have for you this week. Good luck. Happy Labor Day. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.